Growing a small business has never been easy. So, how can we build our companies and shortcut the learning curve? By getting advice from the people who've done it before. Everything you need to grow your business is right here. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to the conference room. Good afternoon and welcome to the conference room. I'm joined by David Levine, the founder and former CEO of Digital Bridge, an award-winning computer vision and machine learning company. David is a graduate from Manchester University and has worked for companies such as HP, where he was in the office of the CTO, and ITIS. David, good afternoon and welcome to the conference room. Thanks very much indeed for having me and it's good to see you again after so many years. Thank you very much. Yeah, David and I are both Mancunians. I'm born and bred and you were a student there and we spent a lot of time hanging out together in our 20s. But also, what you may not know, David, is that you were my first ever LinkedIn contact. Ah, so you were spam or you thought I was spam? Back, back <laughs> in those were, days, that's how, we, that's how we treated LinkedIn. It was just spam to everyone. Back then, yeah, back in August of 2004, you called me up and said, have you heard of this thing called LinkedIn? And I had never heard of it. And you sent me an invite. There we are. But for the benefit of people who don't necessarily know you, all heroes have an origin story. You're the hero of this podcast. What's your origin story? So, first of all, probably one of the first times we called a, a hero, I'll just get out my cape and uh, superhero outfit. But cool. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for, for having me on. So, I mean, I graduated from uh, Computer Science University of Manchester back in 99, I think it was. People think of Manchester in the UK as somewhere very, very rainy and very, very grey, which, by the way, it is rainy it is. and grey. But it's also the birthplace of the modern day computer. You know, 1948, the first program computer actually started up life I think about half a mile from where I am right now. So, in fact, people talk about Silicon Valley, which I've spent a lot of time in my career in as the birthplace of the tech industry. But in reality, it is, in fact, Manchester here in the UK, which was the home of the industrial revolution and clearly the computing revolution. So I did my computer science degree and actually later on my MBA here in Manchester. I then spent seven years at Hewlett Packard working at the office of the CTO, driving a number of joint ventures, including one with Nokia. Remember who Nokia was back in the days. And then I left that business to set up my first startup, which was called JTunes, which was the Jewish version of iTunes. A little bit early to market, I think it's fair to say, because the most successful thing we ever did was having been sued by Apple with a cease and desist. We got them to settle because they were worried we would win. So that was probably the most successful thing we, we did with those. But, you know, great experiences and uh, things to learn. I then took on a number of roles within the connected car industry. So I ran BizDev for a connected navigation business here in the UK, which was acquired by a Seattle-based company called Inrix, funded by Bain Capital. Then I joined Vodafone as the global head of connected car. And whilst I was at Vodafone, I had this idea, I had this problem. I came in for work. But my wife said, uh, can we redecorate our living room? And I was like, yeah, sure, fine. And she was like, great. What do you think of this? And she showed me a square inch of wallpaper and said, what do you think? And I was like, I have no idea what that would look like on our wall. She was like, great, because this is for these three walls and this different one is for this feature wall. What do you think? And I was like, no idea. 
So that came at the idea of building a tool that would somehow allow you to virtually try on wallpaper and carpet and paint furniture in your own room space. We built up that business. We kind of pivoted to a really embracing bathroom and kitchens where we spotted a gap in the market where most of the bathroom and kitchen design software was focused on professional designers, not the ordinary average everyday consumer. And the world, even pre-COVID, where every in-store sale started online, we saw this gap in the market for consumer-focused bathroom and kitchen design tools. So we built one, and we were very, very successful. And uh, I exited that business just coming up to, to six weeks ago now. Congratulations. Is it fair to say that before you came home that day and your lovely wife came to you and presented these two colours to you, you had no interest or any kind of thought whatsoever about starting a business that would be selling into the home improvement or DIY space? Yeah, I'd take it even a step further. I had positively decided I would never start my own business. I couldn't, you know, I had four kids, a mortgage, a wife. I decided that there was just no way I could start a business because the risk profile was far too high. So what changed? What changed is when I was kind of obsessed by this problem, you know, here was a problem that I had. It was obvious to me that other people would have the same problem because I couldn't be the only guy in the world who couldn't work out what wallpaper would look like in his room space. So I figured it's got to be a better way. And so I started off that business and, and here I am. So let's walk in a bit more detail then. So how did you go from an idea to a business? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, from all the people I've spoken to who have formed a business, the successful ones have started with a problem and trying to solve it, right? But lots of people have problems. Lots of people identify problems. How do you turn a problem and the drive to solve it into a viable business? How do you get the team, the funding, the necessary foundations and building blocks to creating a viable business, albeit from a real problem? I think the first step is, I think, really experiencing a problem yourself. I think if you don't experience it and it's not causing you enough pain, then it's kind of hard to have that passion because there are always ups and there are lots lots of downs in building your own business. One person said to me you know, a while ago, the difference between an entrepreneur and everybody else out there is an entrepreneur, just like everybody else, has absolutely no idea how he's going to solve the problem he needs to solve. But unlike everybody else, we'll figure a way out. And that's what I did. And that's what I think every successful entrepreneur did. When you're running your own business, there are no excuses for why you can't do a thing. You just got to kind of figure out a way. You got to hustle. You got to push. You got to drive. You have to balance between listening and learning from everybody around you. Particularly when you hire a team and you hire people far more intelligent than you, which in my case was quite easy. But there'll always be reasons, lots and lots of reasons for people to say no, or you can't do that, or that's a stupid idea. And you've got to be able to have that pool of self-belief that you can call upon to push you through it, whilst sometimes admitting, yeah, they could be right, but it doesn't matter because you want to kind of do this. And I think it's a case of really focusing on what matters. And I think you know, these days there's far more methodology around it when it comes to lean you know, the concept of building a minimal viable product. So I would say for people out there, problems they want to solve and they think this could be a business. That's your hypothesis. Your hypothesis is there is a problem that is in need of being solved and there are people prepared to pay in some way to solve that problem. So you create an experiment, a minimal viable product, which is the 
barest minimum thing you can get into people's hands. And you put it in their hands and you watch and you measure and you see what they do with it. And very often there'll be things you hadn't thought of, it won't work, they won't do it, but they might do something else. But that's all good learning because you have a hypothesis or a series of hypotheses and you are creating an experiment or a series of experiments to test whether or not the hypotheses, the hypothesis or hypotheses holds true in the real world. So you're creating the environment in which you can give, deliver that experiment and measure that experiment. Okay, so let's try about just a little bit then. So you've come home, your wife said, these colours, this living room, and you've become obsessed with this problem, right? And albeit the fact that you have a technology background in your career, so you probably were able to determine where you needed to go to get the help, all right? Do you have technical skills yourself? Were you able to kind of sit at a computer and start programming, or did you need to... No, so although I did do a computer science degree, I wasn't very good at it. Um, <laughs> kind of the programming side, which kind of is similar for a lot of people coming out of computer science degrees. Yeah, not necessarily the best at programming. The first step was when I had the problem is I Googled it. I figured somebody must have thought of this. And there were one or two, but they were really, really poor. I mean, they were really, really poor to the point that they didn't solve the problem in the slightest. Right. So I figured, okay, there's got to be a better way. And what I then did is I figured, okay, well, what are the building blocks to get this done? What are the core technical areas need to be focused on? And it was very clear to me for the problem domain I was solving that computer vision, machine vision was the key problem domain because I wanted to take a picture of a room, recognize the walls, floors, and ceiling and the lighting conditions in that room, then be able to apply, you know, textures such as wallpaper and carpets, etc. So I then got on LinkedIn. Remember LinkedIn, 2004 in August? I got on LinkedIn and I found a number of computer vision PhDs here in Manchester. Got onto LinkedIn, sent the messages, went to the pub quite a few times, which is always good, to meet with these guys and said, look, I can't do this. I'll give you some options if we can solve this together and we'll figure everything else out. I think where people really get stuck, what stops them from doing is they're, they're trying to plot every single step from here to exit, right? And then they kind of get overwhelmed and they're just not sure how they're going to make that move in sort of 28 moves time. And my view is start where you are and just get to the next milestone, get to the next point on the map. And that's what I did. So I approached a couple of these guys to help me build out the demo. I went and got into a customer. One thing was because of my career is kind of B2B enterprise sales, what I've always done. So I'm always able to get into where I want to get into, got into where I wanted to get into, showed it to them, super excited. It bombed. I mean, it was terrible. It was just the worst meeting of my life. We went into this meeting with Kingfisher, who own uh, B&Q, so the world, as the Europe's largest DIY home decor store, showed us them. And we were really excited because we had solved a really, really difficult technical problem. And we showed that. And she was like, whoa, this is, this is crap. She was really quite direct. She said, it's just no good. I'm not showing this to any of my customers. Because what we focused on, we were focusing on us showing off that we had solved a really difficult technical problem as opposed to focusing on the benefit. We weren't positioning and articulating the benefit to the end user. So we went away from there and licked our wounds and kind of moved from there. And in fact, that was the business we ended up doing a very, very big deal with sort of two, three years later because we solved it. So would you say at that point that you had solved the problem, but you just hadn't articulated it in the customer's world? Yeah, correct. We hadn't articulated the benefit to the end customer. Right. You know, constantly now in kind of my focus these days on e-commerce and my advisory work with the startups, what is the benefit? 
articulate and position the benefit to the user, to the end customer, not what you want to tell them. Because what you want to tell them is it's irrelevant, really. It's what's the benefit? Why should they use it? What value does it add? And so we went through that and we then built the business. We got some funding, initial some grant funding here in the UK from a government entity who were giving out funding for high-risk technical products. We got some funding there. And then we just kind of... One second. So pre-fund, pre that grant funding? Very small family of friends around. Very, very small right. family of so we did that family and friends round, got some grant funding that let us get to the next step. We then entered an accelerator. We won the accelerator. That gave us a little bit extra funding. Then we were able to do a proper round because of the traction. And then we went through and did some more customer deals. And what's really interesting, because I'm assuming your audience is both in the UK and in or Europe, but also in, in the US. There is a world of difference between raising money in the UK and raising money in the US. In the UK, early funding means do you have £100,000 in monthly recurring revenue? That's what they say. That's what they think is early stage because they're really, really risk averse. Whereas in the US, typically, and it, you know, it's easy to generalize, but it's very much regional. But have you US, written some words on the back of the napkin? Well, in the US, it's do you have what's the team? Is the market a big enough opportunity that you're attacking? And is it possible? That's early stage. And for that, you get really, really good funding. And just immediately prior to, to global pandemic, my last business trip was actually spent a week out in Silicon Valley with a UK government trade mission around AI. And it was very cool. Spent so Google X, which was a lot of fun, but also a lot of networking. And somebody explained it to me really succinctly. The reason why you have such a different approach, you know, in the US than you can because of funding is every single investor, whether they're a professional or whether they're an angel investor, has sat opposite this kid in Starbucks on University in Palo Alto. And this kid has said, I'm going to build the next billion dollar business. And that investor has laughed at that kid. And that kid has gone and built that next billion dollar business. And that kid was Mark Zuckerberg. Well, there's lots of them. That's the yeah. thing. You know, lots of people experience FOMO. So that's a very, very big difference. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of UK and European-based startups always look to Silicon Valley, to the US, to raise money. Because certainly from the outside looking in, it's an awful lot easier. And it has its own challenges, you know, the US and the Valley. But certainly when it comes to pure fundraising, as long as you kind of line up your ducks correctly, you can do a lot better job and easier job. When you'd won the award before the first, if like, proper round, where was your focus? Was it in overseeing the growth of the product? Was it overseeing the sales base? Before you had well, a product, were you able to sell? I mean, you just talked about the Kingfisher meeting. Were you having more meetings like that? Or what was your role as the CEO? So my role as a CEO, every CEO has four full-time jobs. Sell, build, raise, run the company all the time. As soon as you've raised a round, you start the next round the very next day because they take a long time to come up and so on and so forth. And you got to kind of give people sight of deal flow. Mark Suster, who's a phenomenal investor based out in Los Angeles, has a seminal posting called Lines Not Dots, where he talks about don't turn up an investor door the day before you need to close a round. Turn up at 12 months before, have a coffee, say, I'm not raising, but here's what I'm planning to do. And then you go back in six months, here's what I said I was going to do, here's what I've actually done. So they have data points which they can draw lines to see the trend of how you performed based upon what you're going to say so a ceo has four full-time jobs all the time no matter where they are as the business scales and you can, so you're kind of looking for that product market fit which is the search for a scalable and repeatable business model as you're kind of getting close to that point and you're starting to scale then you do need to bring in very senior people experienced people who have done stuff that you haven't done particularly around product i think one of my biggest regrets is not pulling in 
product owners, product managers earlier than I actually did. But then there's the pressure is to be on the business more than being in the business, which I think is a very, very important distinction. So you write, you raised that initial round, you're doing more deals. Okay. Are you at this point, if you're at the lead salesperson, or give me a sense of the size of the company kind of post that initial round. Post that initial round, we're about 12, 13. And then we're out after this beginning of May, we're just kind of just short of 40 people. I was always kind of lead sales because it's what I've always done. You know, we were a B2B enterprise sales organization. I'm a B2B enterprise sales guy. I have been my entire career. So I was constantly driving those sales efforts out to our customers. And what I was really, really good at is being able to say there's lots of stuff I'm not very good at. And therefore, I'm going to pull in people to focus on that. What I'm less good at is when there are lots of things that I am actually good at, but they're not a really good use of my time. I tend not to give them up quick enough. You know, a good example, early on, I was doing a lot of kind of books myself, the kind of management accounting piece myself around salary and VAT and all that kind of stuff. You know, the day-to-day managing of the books. I was good at it, but it's actually a really poor use of my time because I need to focus on bigger and better things. And I think that's one of the most important things as a CEO is figuring out the activities where you can really move the needle by spending time on. Right. Okay. So when did you know it was time to exit? I've been in the business for coming up to eight years. I pulled in a number of rounds of investors. You know, it was clear that investors want to do things in a certain way. Perhaps it was time for me to really kind of go back to basics, I think. Because, you know, when you build a business of that size, it's not even that big, you know, kind of 40 people. You know, people say, about, oh, you know, you've got a team of people to do things for you. But for me, I'm a very much a sleeves rolled up kind of guy and getting involved. And it's not about having a team of people do things for you is people won't let you do things because that's their job and that's their expertise and I kind of lost that a little bit I missed that the ability to kind of roll up my sleeves and get involved in the cold face which is something that's always appealed to me and so I wanted to go and do something else and I kind of looked outside the market and said yeah the world has changed you know the world has fundamentally changed where it's never been easier to set up your own business e-commerce business with the likes of Shopify People were on furlough or, you know, were looking for new roles. They were realizing that they could do their work from wherever. It didn't matter where that was. And that lots of people were setting up own side gigs and side hustles. And I figured, well, there's got to be an opportunity to really help those businesses. And so that's what I do. So I work on the digital marketing side, primarily for two kind of classes of business. One are the side giggers, side hustlers, who have set up or started off life as a side business. And B2B brands who are trying to move B2C, D2C. I'm really focused on direct-to-consumer. Rather than sell direct via retail store or via different aspects of the channel or their own channels, setting up a direct B2C presence and kind of thinking through the marketing side and the digital marketing, the messaging, the positioning, the folks and the benefit, email, um, trying to get our heads around as an industry, the different changes from Apple and Google over the past couple of weeks around iOS changes. So it's really fascinating because you're kind of at the hub of this huge e-commerce change where we've seen sort of five years of acceleration e-commerce in over a year. But it's allowed me to really get my hands dirty, which is what I really, really missed. Okay, good stuff. So looking back, you mentioned one, but you would say it was a regret, but maybe something would have done slightly differently in yeah, maybe hiring a couple of people. I think you mentioned on the product side, maybe hiring them a little earlier. Anything else? Anything else you'd look back on and go, if I'd known then what I know now, I might have done that differently. Yeah, I think I would have just handed over my credit card to my wife and said, just buy whatever wallpaper you want, rather than trying to, to figure out. Probably would have saved me. I might have had to have more hair, put it that way, um, by that stage. There are always lots of things. There's a constant balance 
you're trying to reach when you're building a business, when you're not trying to hire and scale too fast and to get your product market fit right. And I think I was too reticent with a number of hires. I think it took me too long to get rid of some people. And I think what's, what's a really fascinating dynamic is there are people in the business who are right, who are incredible, and quite frankly, who without whom you would not be there at a certain phase of the business, who as that business grows, morphs and evolves, those people are no longer the right fit for that business for whatever reason. And it's the right thing for them and for the business to move that person out. But because of loyalty, it took me far too long to, you know, to move and manage a couple of people out of the business. And that's hard because, you know, these guys, if it wasn't for them, the business wouldn't even be there. And now you're going to move them out. And that, that's really, really hard. So I think I should have done that an awful lot quicker. I think. Okay. And what other tips do you think would you give to someone else that's an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe in a similar kind of position that you were in, say, four or five years ago? Just kind of starting um, out, just getting it going. Yeah, just do it. Just put one step in front of you. Don't figure out what's going to happen, you know, in 18 moves time. You know, this is not Queen's Gambit. This is figure out your next step. Have belief and confidence in yourself that no matter what's going to come your way, you'll figure out a way. It'll take some chewing gum and some sticky tape, various other bits and bobs that might all fall apart mid-flight. But that's all part of the fun. Just have a parachute. Great stuff. That's fantastic. And so you mentioned your digital marketing business. What's next for you and for that? Any plans to start something else? What's interesting is I've gone from kind of the last eight years of my own business, Digital Bridge, I've gone from learning to keep a cap on all the various ideas an entrepreneur has and focus on one to I now have eight again. And, you know, which of those horses are the likely winners? That's kind of where I'm at to the stage right now, which of those horses that I'm currently backing are the ones that are likely going to take me towards the end. We'll watch eagerly as you progress. So uh, how can anyone get any more information about you, about maybe Digital Bridge or about any of the other businesses? LinkedIn is always the, the best way to get me. Uh, David Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I have been since well before August 2004 when I decided to tell Simon Leader about this new fangled thing called LinkedIn. I'm happy to connect with people. Just send me a little note as to where I want to connect and what I can do for you and uh, we can chat. Great. And I'll make sure that we post all that on the show notes. And Dave, it's been great catching up. It's been great hearing your story about Digital Bridge. And I wish you all the very, very best in your future endeavors. I'm sure it's going to be a great success, whatever it is. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Simon. Coming up next week on The Conference Room, I'll be talking to LinkedIn expert, Bill McCormick. So on LinkedIn, you need to find a context to connect with someone. And selling to them is not a context. Look at their profile. I guarantee if you like and comment on people's content, they're going to be much more open to connecting with you and having further conversation. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com, where you can find all the show notes, plus links to the resources mentioned during the podcast. If you enjoyed listening to this, make sure you subscribe so that you're always the first to know when each episode is released. Also, please take the time to review the podcast so the more people who want to grow their businesses can find us. To talk about this or any other podcast or in fact anything business related whatsoever, find me on Twitter at Simon Lader or you can find me by searching for Simon Lader or Silesia Academy on Facebook or on LinkedIn. I'm always open to a conversation. Thanks for listening to the conference room. Until next time, keep talking.